Well, today we're talking about the question uh, or the myth that the Bible isn't reliable. And so this morning, uh, it really, this has come about because I've had many uh, folks, uh, many of you come to me and we've had conversations when you've discovered something uh, that Jesus has said that's really difficult. Or you've read some other part of the Bible that is a difficult passage just to really swallow. And some of you have come to me and said, well, how can we really know the Bible is true? How can we know that's reliable? You know, how, how, you know, we, how, how did Jesus, uh, maybe he did say that, or maybe someone added some words to Jesus' words later in time. And so maybe we shouldn't trust what's there right now. Um, how do we know that these writings that are in the Bible are inspired of God? And, and what about some of these other writings over here? How come they aren't included in the Bible? So, you know, these questions are all really good questions, and they should be answered, and especially if you're deciding about being a Christ follower, because the Bible plays an important role in the life of a Christ follower. And I want to share with you what the Bible claims about itself, not what this church claims about the Bible, not what any other particular denomination or church claims about the Bible, but I want to try to show you what the Bible claims about itself. And uh, there is, you know... Uh, there's a lot of ground to cover in just a short bit of time, so I'm going I'm to be speeding through this. I don't know if you call this preaching, if you call it teaching, or if you just call it a whole bunch of information I'm going to throw at you. I, I kind of feel like I'm going to be information man today. So I apologize for that. Uh, this may not seem like a real message or a real sermon or anything, but uh, it is important stuff that we're going to be talking about and I want to share with you. Uh, first, what you got to know is uh, what the Bible claims to be written, uh, what it claims about itself, so that you can test the claims, all right? And uh, the Bible claims to be written by authors under the direction of the Holy Spirit and that the writing is inspired of God. And uh, spire, that word coming from uh, like respiration, respire, uh, it's breathe. That's what it literally means. The inspiration is specific to those who are called prophets of God or apostles. And the inspiration was different from a moment of great imagination. It's not the same thing. Uh, it's not a moment of uh, creativity. It is God speaking. In, in fact, uh, God said to Moses about his prophets, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak, them, speak to them all I commanded him. And it, you know, back in the day when someone claimed to be prophet and they said something and it, it wasn't true, or it didn't come about to pass, you know what they did with those guys? They, they killed them. Yeah. So um, they took this as serious business, um, this whole thing of speaking on God's behalf or God speaking through them. And people didn't play around with that. And then he also added that you shall not add to the word which I command you or take, or take away from it. David, uh, who was a prophet and also a king, said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. And the Apostle Peter spoke of the whole Old Testament, saying that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In speaking of the whole Old Testament, the Apostle Peter also said, all Scripture is God-breathed. There's that whole inspired thing, inspiration. Uh, and this is exactly what is meant when the Bible claims to be inspired by God. It was breathed from His very mouth. In fact, uh, Back in the day when everyone was uh, using Latin, uh, they used to call the Bible Wokes Deo, the voice of God. 
This is like a recording of his voice. Jesus described the scriptures as the very word that comes out of the mouth of God. And this is real important that you understand what Jesus claimed about the word of God. That is, if, if you're a Christ follower, this would be important for you to know. The extent of how seriously every word was taken as God's authoritative word can be seen how Jesus pointed out specific words, the tense of verbs, and even the smallest parts of words. Jesus points out the word Lord that David wrote about when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, you sit at my right hand. And he got into uh, a discussion, a friendly argument with the Pharisees uh, and, and said, why does the scripture say this? And he pointed out a specific word. And then uh, Jesus also uh, pointed out to uh, the Sadducees who didn't believe uh, in the resurrection and said, uh, he said that God says, I am the God of Abraham, not I was. And so he's pointing out the tense of a verb. So Jesus took very seriously every bit of Scripture. And Jesus also said this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's pretty inclusive right there. All right. Um, although the Bible claims to be the word of God is also the word of human beings. It claims to be God's communication to people in their own language, using human literary styles, manifesting human perspectives, uh, emotions and logic. In the Bible, you'll find the Old Testament passage, uh, you'll f- see that sometimes they'll say, um, God said this. Yet, and when you look into the, the New Testament, it will say, the scriptures said this. So the use of the word scripture is important uh, because it is taken, uh, well, you find the reverse is true too, that the Old Testament will say that the Bible or the scripture says and then the, when the New Testament cites the Old Testament, it'll say that the passage, uh, it'll say that God said it. So, uh, Scripture, when you say Scripture says, basically, it means God said. Or you could say God says, and it's the same as the Scripture says. So, the use of the word of Scripture is significant when uh, in the New Testament you can read where the Apostle Peter acknowledges all of the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches as Scripture. He calls them Scripture. And this is while they're both still living. Jesus also testified that the Old Testament to be the Word of God and claimed that it had divine authority, indestructibility, infallibility or unbreakability, ultimate supremacy, factual, uh, without mistakes, historical reliability, and scientific accuracy. Jesus, he quoted... The Genesis account said that God created the male and female. He, he quoted it as if it had really happened. He quoted uh, the account of the flood as if it really happened. He quoted the account of Jonah being swallowed by a great fish as if it really happened, as if they were historical. That's the way the Lord Jesus talked about the Scriptures. The Bible, the Old Testament and New Testament, claims to be from God. It, is not, uh, also, it also claims it is not cleverly invented tales made up by men. And if the authors God used to record the Scripture had not claimed to speak for God, then it would be presumptuous for us or anybody else 
to make that, make that claim for them. If the Bible did not claim to speak on the behalf of God, then we wouldn't have any foundation for our faith. There'd be no reason for us to be here today. Big claims. So how do you test those claims? How do you know whether they're true or not? Well, several tests can be applied. And they're applied to any other historical document, whether it be the Iliad or the Odyssey or any one of Shakespeare's works or uh, anything written by Caesar. Uh, use the same historical test you use on them, use on the Bible. And uh, one is an internal evidence test. It's just looking at the claims of the document and not assuming error or fraud unless the author disqualifies himself by contradictions or known factual inaccuracies. The ability of the author to tell the truth is closely related to the nearness of, in place and time to the actual events recorded. For the New Testament, every author was an eyewitness. Every author was an eyewitness or recording the account of an actual eyewitness. Uh, like uh, Mark was a traveling companion to Paul and uh, wrote uh, uh, and recorded for him. Luke, uh, no, not Mark for Peter, Paul, uh, Luke was writing for Paul. Sorry, I'm going to switch around. Closeness uh, to the recorded events is also important. Uh, again, like if you had an eyewitness account, uh, it would be good uh, if you're in an accident. Well, and you have somebody that comes in and testifies for you. Well, it would be great if they were right there at the scene of the accident. Because uh, if they're somewhere else, uh, two blocks away, three blocks away, then their account is not credible. Okay? So nearness to the time of the events is also important. And the New Testament accounts of Jesus were being circulated within the lifetime of those who are alive at the time of Jesus' life. So the apostles, um, the disciples of the apostles, people could confirm or deny the accuracy of the accounts. The disciples of Jesus who recorded the accounts of Jesus' life and teachings knew that they couldn't risk changing or manip manipulating the facts. And they even confidently appealed to the knowledge of their hearers saying, we are witnesses of these things. As you yourselves know, and the writers of the New Testament also knew that there were eyewitnesses who were hostile to the gospel, hostile to the Christian faith. And they knew that if they invented any false statements, they could be and would be challenged because there were people still alive who saw what happened, knew the story of what happened. So the disciples who wrote stood by their accounts in the light of opposition and even in the face of death. And the big question is, who would die for a lie? Who would die for a lie? Yet all of the apostles, except John, were executed for their testimony to the truth of the scriptures that Jesus was the crucified and resurrected Messiah. The other internal evidence uh, to the truth of the scriptures is the honesty of the accounts. Most literature, uh, even up into the, to the 1850s, uh, when people would write uh, autobiographies, they would only write the good things about themselves. People are just very prideful about themselves. But when you look at the accounts uh, of the apostles, they record all these embarrassing things. They record things like uh, um, the competition that kind of went on between apostles for high places in the kingdom. Remember uh, James and John and the argument they started when they said, hey, can we have the, the, the seat next to you in heaven? Um, that they record the account of them fleeing Jesus when he was arrested. Nobody really stood by. They deserted him. There, there's a record of Peter's denial. 
There's their failure to work miracles recorded. There's even Jesus' despairing cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somebody else probably would have left that out. There's admission to some of their hearers accusing them of insanity. But they record it just as everything happened. And that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful an appealing personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, it would be a miracle far greater than any recorded in the Bible. These men were simple men that followed Jesus and the ones who were these eyewitnesses of all that happened. This uh, brings into a, another factor of the internal evidence test. Forty different authors of the Bible writing over a period of 1,600 years. Yet from Genesis to Revelation, they tell one unfolding story. And together they give consistent answers from Genesis to Revelation to the most important questions that we raise in life. Why are we here? Where did the universe come from? How did the human race originate? What is wrong with the world? Why is there suffering in the world? Why is the answer to people's, what is the answer to people's sense of guilt? How can people live upright lives? What will happen to the world? How can I make my peace with my maker? No other writing on earth gives satisfactory answers to these questions. Now, another part of the internal evidence for the claims of the Bible is the many prophecies and predictions that were given hundreds of years in advance before they ever came into being. And they were fulfilled exactly. Think about it. Think about if you were going to try to uh, come up with specific details and about an event that was going to happen 700 to 4,000 years from now. You say, well, maybe I could name a person and uh, say this would happen to them and, uh, you know, the odds of how many people and things like that. Uh, and over a period of long time, sure, I'm sure that something I would create today might happen. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Um, in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled more than 300 prophecies about himself. Now, there's some of those prophecies that, you know, you might say, well, hey, he could have read the scriptures and then tried to fulfill them. Well, there's certain ones that you can't self-fulfill. You can't say from the womb, hey, mom, I need to be born over in Bethlehem. Get over there. You, you can't say, hey, mom and dad, I really want my name to be this because it'll be really awkward if I have to change my name later to the name of the, what the Savior is supposed to be. Um, he couldn't arrange his betrayal. He couldn't arrange the manner of his death. Um, there, there's about eight. There's just eight, eight of these things that, are, that can't be self-fulfilled. Now, so what's the possibilities of one man, by accident, fulfilling just eight of these prophecies? Like manner of birth, place of birth, manner of death, burial. The chances for one person just accidentally fulfilling eight prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. Okay, that's ten with 17 zeros. And because I'm not a math person, I don't even understand how big that number is. So they got these guys who help put terms uh, for numbers like this in, in pictures for guys like me, all right? And so what that would be like would be taking uh, the state, take a state the size of Texas, fill it up with uh, silver dollars, knee deep, okay? So whole, imagine the whole state of Texas filled with silver, do silver dollars, knee deep. Uh, take one coin, mark it, toss it out there into Texas, stir thoroughly, 
and then blindfold a guy, let him walk out there. Let him walk out there for several months and anywhere, any direction, and just bend down and pick up one coin. And if he had it, that would be the chances of one man fulfilling eight prophecies. But let me tell you this. Uh, what, what if it was just maybe 48? 48 prophecies. The odds of one person accidentally fulfilling them would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Again, I can't imagine that number. But uh, they say it would be like um, taking a cubic inch of electrons. And, and if you try to begin counting all the electrons in that cubic inch, it would take 19 million times 19 million times 19 million years to count all of them if you counted 250 of them per minute. So imagine I'm counting 250 electrons per minute for 19 million times 19 million times 19 million years. So that's a lot of electrons in one little space, okay? So mark one of those electrons, shake vigorously, <laughs> blindfold somebody, and have them pick one electron out of those billions and billions of electrons. And the chance of one man picking that would be the chance of one man accidentally fulfilling 48 prophecies. Can I tell you, Jesus fulfilled 322 prophecies. The laws of probability and mathematics give us reason to believe that the Bible and its prophecies are not accidental, not invented by man. So from the internal evidence, we have honest eyewitness accounts. We have the testimony of Jesus who says and quotes things as if they were historical. We have the unity of consistent answers from cover to cover. We have not general but specific prophecies fulfilled 700 to 4,000 years after their time, showing that the Bible has some weight to its claim of being divinely inspired. A second test is the external evidence test. What material outside of the Bible or whatever ancient text you're verifying can substantiate its accuracy, reliability, and authenticity? And one part of an external evidence test is the agreement of witnesses. All right? Uh, there's a guy named Polycarp, a guy named Papias. And I'm saying his name wrong, but that's how I'm going to say it today. But they were both uh, disciples of the Apostle John. And they testified, both of them, in different places at different times, testified saying that, uh, that Mark was the interpreter for Peter and wrote down all that Peter said. And also he... Uh, recorded uh, just events as, as Peter related them to him. John also described how Luke uh, traveled, and, and these guys also testified that John told them, the Apostle John told them, that Luke traveled with Paul and recorded Paul's words. Okay, well that matches up with what we read in the Bible, what it says when Luke tells about in the beginning of his gospel why I'm recording this and who I'm recording it for. So there are also historians outside of biblical authors, like the historian Josephus, who was a Jew, and who recorded all kinds of historical events and verifies the accounts found in the Bible. Now, another part of external evidence is archaeology. The Bible mentions a lot of different places and peoples. So if it's just made up, then it would be all fictional. So there's surely some sort of evidence of all these people and places. Well, archaeology shows us externally, external evidence that the Bible is accurate in what it talks about. For a long time... Uh, uh, People doubted some of the recordings in the Old Testament because uh, there was mention of uh, the Hittite, Hittite people 
about 36 times throughout the Old Testament. And there was no archaeological record of the Hittite people existing anywhere until in Turkey, some excavations found extensive finds of the Hittite Empire. The, the Ebla tablets discovered in Syria in 1960s included the names of cities of Ur, Sodom, and Gomorrah, places that Bible opponents used to say did not exist, that they were made up. For many years, uh, the Gospels and the account of the death and resurrection of Jesus were doubted because there was no record in, in Roman history of a man named Pontius Pilate, who was supposed to be the governor over Judea. Not until uh, someone, some archaeologists, were at Caesarea by the sea, a little, little town where there was Roman influence, and there was an amphitheater built. And in that amphitheater, as they were doing some work and, and refurbishing the area, somebody turned over one of the seats, one of the stones, and on the back of that stone was an inscription dedicating that building to Pontius Pilate. Archaeology also gives evidence to the preservation of the Bible that has not been tampered with or changed. Just after Israel became a modern nation in 1948, a Bedouin shepherd discovered one of the most important archaeological treasures of our time. In a cave near the Dead Sea were found numerous clay jars holding biblical manuscripts that predated the oldest copies we presently had by a thousand years. Today, you can go to the Dead Sea Scroll Museum and like I did once, and you can look and view a copy on a scroll of Isaiah that reads word for word the same as what's in your Bibles today. It's pretty amazing. That brings me to the final test uh, for the reliability of the Bible. What is called the bibliographical test, which is uh, like an internal and external evidence test. It's used on other historical documents, not just the Bible. But the bibliographical test examines the transmission of texts, how they reach us today. And this is the test that answers the question, after so many years of being translated and passed on, hasn't the Bible been altered by men? And since we don't have the original documents that Isaiah wrote or that the Apostle Paul wrote, how reliable are the copies that we have today? So the way the bibliographical test works is that it measures the accuracy of the number of copies and how close in time those copies were written to the actual events and the original copy. So here's, here's what I mean by this. The history of... Um, Got another name. I didn't, I didn't do my homework very well. The history of... It's a Greek guy. T.U. Thucydides. We'll say it that way. He lived between 460 and 400 B.C. And, uh, and, and his manuscripts are available to... Uh, his writing is avail available to us today from just eight manuscripts dated about A.D. 900, almost 1,300 years after he wrote the original. So, looking at that, you go, well, that may not be very reliable. Aristotle wrote his Poetics around 343 B.C., and, and there's only five manuscripts known. And the earliest copy is dated A.D. 1100, nearly 1,400 years after he originally wrote. Caesar composed a history of the Gallic Wars between 58 and 50 B.C., BC and its reliability rests on just nine copies dating 1,000 years after his death. When it comes to the New Testament, the reliability rests on 20,000 manuscripts, some of the earliest copies being written A.D. 130 and A.D. 155, only 60 to 75 years after the originals were written by the apostles. 
When it comes to the manuscript authority of the New Testament, the abundance of materials outdistances any other historical document. The Iliad by Homer is the only writing that comes close with 643 manuscripts, and it ranks second in manuscript authority after the New Testament. So what did I just tell you? If you have 20,000 ancient copies of the New Testament and you can compare them and, and you can see if there's discrepancies within those and you can also compare them to what we have today. The time factor is also important that some of our earliest copies of the New Testament are around 130 to 155 AD because the students of the apostles were still alive at that time. They were there to point out errors. They were there to say, no, nah, no, nah, sorry, that's not the way the Apostle John told me it went. That's not the way that the Apostle Peter told me it way, way it went. They were still living. So we can know that the words of Jesus recorded in the Bible are accurate and weren't thrown in at some other later date. No, now, one note beside this point, and I hear this sometimes, is the myth that there are inaccuracies because of the many languages the Bible has been translated to. But I want you to know the Bible was never translated from Greek to German, from German to English, from English to Japanese, okay? The Bible is always translated from its original language, Greek or Hebrew, to the native language. So it's translated from Greek to English, from Greek to German, from Hebrew to English, from Hebrew to German, okay? There's no little ladder or domino effect of translation. It's always going back to original. So one last question to the reliability of the Bible is how do we know that what we have in the Bible are the only inspired God writings? How do we know that these are inspired and not others? Well, the, the books that are included in the Bible were referred to as the canon. In Greek, canon meant read. Reeds were used to measure things with. They were measuring rods. And so canon meant standard. And so what the standard for what was accepted or recognized as divinely inspired was boiled down to, to about five questions. And here's what they were. Is it authoritative? Does it come from God? Having a divine, thus says the Lord. Does it claim to be from God? That was one of the things. Second thing, is it prophetic? Was it written by a man of God? Three, is it authentic? There are a lot of spurious copies later. Uh, there are spurious writings, uh, s some claiming that they're from Thomas or from one of the apostles. But it was, you know, they, they were found and shown around 200 A.D. And most of the believers were like, eh, eh, no way, no way, that can't be. Uh, also, is it dynamic? Meaning, did it come with the life-transforming power of God? And then five, was it received, collected, and read by the use, and used by the people of God? For the New Testament, there were two other questions asked. Does it have apostolic authority? Meaning, did it come from one of the 12 apostles? And two, did it have apostolic approval? Like, as in the case with Mark was writing for Peter, who we don't know if because he was a simple fisherman, he didn't know how to write, uh, someone wrote for him or what. But um, these questions led to the exclusion of different books that were not included in the Bible. Uh, the apocryphal books, which were never quoted by Jesus and never accepted by the Jews. Uh, for the Old Testament and New Testament, there were Hebrew councils that gathered and church councils, uh, and they, and, but they didn't choose the books that were to be in the Bible. You know what those councils were for? They were there to say, there were, there were people coming up with false writings and saying, ah, we need to share this in church and this is what's right and this is what's good. And the councils came together to say what was not inspired of God. Not to say what was. 
because pretty much everyone had already agreed upon what was good and what was right and what was from God. So the canon had already been recognized and accepted by the people of God. The councils were only formed to come in agreement and affirm what was accepted and reject heretics who were propagating their own writings and books like the Gnostic Gospels, which claimed Jesus never came in flesh. Well, that's directly opposed to the teaching of the apostles. So one of these first councils, one of the first councils was in AD 140, while the disciples of the apostles were still living. Some writings were rejected simply because they did not claim to be inspired by God. Now, we know that the Bible in its entirety was already accepted as it was, as we have it today, in 303 A.D. And why do we know that? Because there was a ruler of the Roman Empire named Diocletian, and he was declaring the destruction of the book of the Christians. And we know from that one decree that it was already known what was and what wasn't the book of the Christians. So, but what Diocletian didn't know is that the word of our God stands forever. And that heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will never pass away. And the Bible is unlike any other book written. It's not written by man. It's been authored and inspired by God. And the message contained in the Bible has transformed the lives. It's given peace. It's rescued people from despair. It's brought purpose. It's given hope to spiritually hopeless. It's given life to the spiritually dead and deliverance to the spiritually enslaved. No other book in the world can make such claims. None other. The message in the Bible has transcended culture and changed entire tribes and nations like the Celts of Ireland, the Vikings of Norway, and the Aka Indians of Ecuador. The book of Moses were written 500 years before the earliest Hindu scriptures, 2,000 years before Muhammad penned the Quran, and during the Bible's long history, no other book has been as loved or as hated as the Bible. It divides. Many have tried to destroy or disprove the Bible and then later found themselves professing the belief in the message contained in it. The internal and external evidence, the integrity, the archaeology, the bibliographical test, the historical accuracy, the prophecies fulfilled, the unity of it all, and its endorsement by Jesus all tell me that there is a great body of evidence that the Bible is indeed more reliable than any other writing on this earth. But you know what? I didn't know any of that when I started reading the Bible at age 14. I didn't know any of that. I was just asked to read it, and I did. And when I started reading it, something happened. There was, there was conviction and belief that wasn't there before I read it. Something happened to me. It came alive to me. I only knew one thing to do, and that was to respond to the message contained in the Bible by obeying what it said. So I came to Jesus. And by doing what He said and experiencing the results I found all the evidence I needed that the Bible was true. I believe the Bible is the Word of God, and that is entirely true, and God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is, people. And I, I challenge you, I challenge you, if you are still struggling with this, research it. Find out. Over here, we, we have some books. There's one that's, uh, Who is This Man Called Jesus?, there's also, uh, my wife uh, put together 
this little compilation for students. It's a, like a quick reference. Some of the things I mentioned today about prophecies and uh, uh, the canon are in that, in this quick reference where you can just pull it open. I also encourage you to look up Josh McDowell's website. He was a man who set out to prove that the Bible and the account of the resurrection was false. Well, you know what? He's a believer today, and he has a worldwide ministry challenging people to, to read God's Word and to get into it. And so uh, check out his website. Uh, read his, uh, his book that he wrote, More Than a Carpenter. There's other writings out there that help investigate the reliability of the Scriptures. But I challenge you, don't leave this unanswered. You can't. You can't because there are too many important things recorded in the Bible that answer life's questions. And some of those answers are challenging and if you don't have it settled in your heart that the Bible is true when it comes to the moment when you're going to choose to disobey or obey what the Word says, if you don't have it settled that this is from God, you're going to waver. You're going to waver and you're going to, you're going to disobey. I'm telling you, you've got to have a conviction that it's true. Now, I, our time is up and it's time for us to close. And, and I'm, I'm sorry that today... I, I uh, went on about this, but this is very important. I've had too many people in this congregation ask me questions about the reliability of God's Word. And uh, we've, we've got to settle this. But I want you to know, as, as a leader of this church and the, and the other leaders in this church, we believe that the Bible is entirely true and it is God-breathed. And that is where we stand and we will always stand. All right? So that means that you have some decisions to make about what you believe about the Bible. I'm just going to pray, and then we're going, to, we're going to get out of here, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and what you've spoken to us. Thank you for what you've given to us, the direction, the answers for this life. And Father, I pray that we might trust you and trust your word and follow it. God, I pray for those who are still questioning and wondering. I pray that you'd help them and investigate this out, help them to get to the bottom of this. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.